0: This podcast is produced by Insights at Questrom, a digital platform for business research with impact and expert takes on current business news from Boston University Questrom School of Business. Get more insights after the show by visiting insights.bu.edu. This podcast is produced by Insights at Questrom, a digital platform for business research with impact and expert takes on current business news from Boston University Questrom School of Business. Get more insights after the show by visiting insights.bu.edu.
1: Learn to slow down a bit, because I think as we rush through life, we tend to act more out of habit. And when we make the choice to slow down, we can make more deliberate choices about how to approach things.
0: On this episode of the Insights at Western podcast, insights Questrom contributors steve sisto and shannon light sit down with back coming up next about his new book the optimistic pessimist it's season two of the insights equestrian podcast and we are so excited for you to join us yet again and we've got another great year packed full of experts from boston university equestrian school of business sharing their insights on the world of business. This one's a great one, and we want to jump right into it with Insights Equestrium contributors Steve Sisto and Shannon Light sat down with senior lecturer of management and organizations, Moshe Cohen, author of several leadership books and books on negotiation, as he talks about his latest book, The Optimistic Pessimist.
2: We are pleased to be here with Professor Moshe Cohen of Boston University's Questrom School of Business. Good morning, Moshe. How are you? Excellent,
1: Stephen. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thank you so much for
2: joining us. So your new book is The Optimistic Pessimist. What's that
1: about? So over the last three years, I've written essays um, almost on a weekly basis. Um, you may recall that we had a pandemic, and I found it to be rather a depressing time. And what I do when I'm depressed is I write. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we went into lockdown, I wrote an essay called Optimism as a Choice. And then a week later, I wrote another essay. And then I wrote another essay. Um, when we went off lockdown, I, combined, I compiled them into a book called Optimism is a Choice and Other Timeless Ideas. But then I kept writing essays. So uh, I took the next set of essays that I wrote and I compiled it into a book called The Optimistic Pessimist. Each book is named after the first essay in the book. And the idea with The Optimistic Pessimist is that I live optimism, I preach optimism, I teach optimism, but at night, When I'm all by myself with my thoughts, things can go pretty dark and my anxieties flare up and I'm as pessimistic as the next person. So I'm a pessimist by nature, but I choose not to live that way. I choose to be an optimist.
2: Do you have any tools for that? Any tips for people who may be feeling the same way? How do you choose optimism over pessimism when things look so bleak?
1: So the first thing I think you need to do is learn to slow down a bit. Because I think as we rush through life, we tend to act more out of habit. And when we make the choice to slow down, we can make more deliberate choices about how to approach things. You know, one of the things that I've heard these days is that, uh, people are hardly ever bored anymore. You know, I I don't know what you were like growing up, but. When I was a kid waiting at the bus stop, we had nothing to do. We kicked rocks and threw sticks and there was nothing much to do. And that gives you an awful lot of time to be bored and slow down. Now, my kids have never experienced that. They just turn on their phone and they watch a video or they, they go on their uh, Instagram or whatever it is. We don't take the opportunities to slow down. And if you're going to be mindful about the choices you make, you need to build that in
3: you say they were short essays. Was there a reason behind the, the word count for these essays? So,
1: you know how sometimes things just become things? So the first essay happened to be about 500 words. And then that seemed good. And so the next one was also about 500 words. And then it became a thing. I find that once I do something about three times, it becomes a thing. So all of the essays, I forced myself to to be between 495 and 500 words. And what I found was that it created a lot of discipline Mm -hmm. on me to write more concisely to write well, because the first draft was often, you know, 600 words, and then I'd have to chop it down and get a lot more precise in my writing. And I found that I just wrote better if I aimed for this very narrow band of words.
3: Do you have Happen to have a favorite essay or lesson in this book, The Optimistic Pessimist.
1: So, what's interesting is that the second set of essays ended up including a lot more humor and a lot more observation. So, one of my essays is, is actually the, the second essay is called "The Whale Story," and it talks about that incident. What you might have heard about um, off Cape Cod when a diver was actually um, caught in a whale's mouth for about a minute. And then, after about a minute, the whale went patooey and uh, spat him back out. But I wrote the essay from the point of view of the whale. Because, you know, we're so embedded in our own thinking, this was not a fun thing for the whale either. I mean, it's, it's you know, in, in the book, I say it's like going for a TikTok, uh, for, 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 oh, sorry, go, going for a Tic Tac and ending up with like a live mouse in your mouth. I mean, it, 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 this, this must have been shocking to, to the whale. So that was one of my favorites. I also wrote one called The Sandcastle. Um, I happened to be on the beach. And someone had built this beautiful sandcastle, but the tide was coming in and slowly eroding and chipping away at the sandcastle. And I just stood there for about 20 minutes and just watched that sandcastle succumb to the waves. And it was so fascinating. And I wrote an essay about that, about the impermanence of things and how we build these things and we put our heart and soul into them. Even though we know that the ocean's going to come and take them away, so yeah, those are two of my favorites. But uh, th- there's a you know there's a lot of fun ones that I wrote along the way. I wrote one called "People Are Annoying," which is about return to office. Mm-hmm. Um, Because, you know, after we've been away from people for two years, we forgot how annoying it is when people stop by our cubicle or they chew loud, you know, and the next next desk, desk over or they slurp their coffee. People are annoying, right? I'm annoying. You're annoying. We're all annoying. But we've been apart from each other and we've been isolated from a lot of the annoying parts. Well, now we're all back together again. And that's good in many ways. But it's also irritating in others so yeah so those, those are three of the ones that uh jumped to mind right away
2: one of my favorite essays was the year of the introvert as an introvert myself that one really really spoke to me but um a lot of your essays have really good lessons for life one of the favorite lines from one of your essays That I read was, giving up control is scary, but holding on to it is a dangerous illusion. By believing that things might be okay, even if we don't control everything, we open ourselves up to opportunities and enrich our lives. And that's a risk worth taking. That, to me, is just such a powerful line and lesson for people. And so my question is, what lessons do you hope people get from this collection of essays?
1: So I I think the first one is that they do have choices in how they respond to the world. And a lot of times I think we live in a feeling of helplessness, that whatever's going around is imposed on us and that we're stuck but within that, we still have a lot of choices. We have a choice of what to focus on. We have a choice of how to interact with other people. We have a choice of how to how to frame things in our minds, um, what to do. And I want this book to be empowering for people. I want them to feel that... Things may not be the way I intended. Things may not be the way I expected. Not everything is so wonderful, but I have a lot of choices within that that empower me and allow me to make my life a lot better than it would be if I didn't make those choices.
3: Do you ever incorporate these essays and lessons in in, the, in your books into your teaching?
1: <sighs> so much. <laughs> All you have to do is to go to any of the classes I've ever taught. For, for example, you know, I teach at the MSMS program and just say the words optimism and the entire class will say is a choice. <laughs> I, I don't just incorporate it. I, I, I almost preach it. I, you know, these are such core beliefs of mine and Uh, I really want people to hear them and then to choose what they want to do with them. So they know how I feel. They don't have to feel the same way. But, yeah, I incorporate these things into my my teaching all the time. You know, in uh, the first book, in in Optimism as a Choice, I have uh, an essay called Smart and Lucky, which is another core belief in mine, which is in, in life you have to be smart, but you also have to be lucky. And the less smart you are, the luckier you need to be. You know, if I make good choices, I move the odds in my favor and I don't need luck quite so much. If I make really bad choices, then I'm relying on luck. So, for example, if I am late to leave the house and go to a meeting, those lights had all better be green. (laughs) Right now, I need luck. (laughs) And if I leave earlier, I can tolerate some green, some red. I don't rely on luck in quite the same way. You know, a core belief of mine is that, uh, life is statistical and we don't get to actually determine much. All we get to do is move the odds in our favor or against ourselves. And then life you have to be smart and you have to be lucky. And I incorporate that into my teaching as well.
2: That's interesting because I think so many of us have such a negative worldview that if you believe in the statistics, you believe that you're always going to lose essentially. So having, so trying to turn off that mindset and being optimism that, Hey, maybe the odds are in my favor this time. It's a, can't be easy.
1: (laughs) It's a practice. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So the way I say it is that optimism is a choice that becomes a practice that becomes a lifestyle. And do anything long enough and you can replace your existing habits with new habits. Um, I have amazing parking karma. And the reason I can always find parking is because I believe that I'm always going to find parking. And I go into the most challenging places just with utter confidence that someone's going to pull out and I'm going to find a spot. And most of the time, it turns out that way. And on top of that, I'm so positive about it that when it doesn't turn out that way, I forget that it happened. And I only remember all the times when I did find parking. So I have this, you know, this positive approach to parking that I also, again, I teach my kids that I encourage my students to to take the risk. You know, I got that actually from my dad. My dad said, when you go to a restaurant, always look for parking by the door because statistically, it's just as likely that there'll be a spot there as three blocks away. If you park, if you look three blocks away, you're not going to find one by the door. So, you know, I think we learn these lessons from other people. I think we take away from them what we, what we take away. Um, But then, you know, humans are also very much embedded in the stories we tell ourselves. We create narratives in our minds about the situation, about ourselves, about other people. And then we repeat, those narratives to ourselves until they become our reality and what you choose to repeat yourself becomes what you believe and how you live your life. So yes, learning to be optimistic when that wasn't your natural bent um, that takes some work, but that's where the optimistic pessimist comes in because this did not come natural to me. I was much more of a pessimist until I decided not to be.
2: I have to say, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, so having positive parking karma just doesn't really exist. And so I often find myself just grabbing the first available spot that, that's within reasonable walking distance because I figure there's no way there's going to be one any closer. But maybe I should I should take a lesson from your playbook and, uh, and just go for the door and
1: hopefully there's one closer. You know, it's like the Ted Lazo thing, the believe, right? You you got to believe it's possible. I I was in D.C. on Tuesday and Wednesday. My class ended at 5. I'd scheduled a 6 p.m. flight back to Boston. Um, Class actually ran over. I left at 5.15, strolled over to the metro, took the metro to national, strolled over through security, strolled to the gate. They were boarding group six as I walked up to the gate. Walked and I'm onto my plane and flew home. And I wasn't stressed for a second about it. And I didn't run. And I just, you know, I just believed it'll all work out. And it did.
3: I'm curious because I know in the more recent years, especially during the pandemic, I kept hearing about manifestation. Is there, can you explain? optimism and manifestation and if there's a difference or the relation between the two terms so
1: unlike you i haven't heard of manifestation so i don't know how to respond to that
3: ah okay man my understanding and i i really haven't explored it much but manifestation is there are different practices to go about it but some people say you know you wake up And you sit and you say, you know, today will be a good day. I will have a good day today. It's almost like repetition. This is, this is, like I said, my understanding of it as well. There's, I think, I think everyone has a different view on it, but it is positive thinking and putting it out into the universe so that it will come true. Or you believe that the more I put it out into the universe it will come true. And you're you speaking on, you know, I will get a parking spot. I will get a parking spot. That is what made me think of this. And Steve, I don't know if I don't know how familiar you are with the, you know, manifesting manifestation. But yeah, my idea of it was always you have to visualize something as
2: specific as possible, whether you speak it or you picture it in your mind or you print a picture of it and put it on a board somewhere and you try to visualize it so that it will happen in the future.
1: Yeah. So my approach is actually quite different. Um, I have a very realistic version of optimism that I believe. And what I mean by that is I know that I'm just as likely or unlikely to find parking as anybody else. I know that it potentially, if I'm going to Newberry street could be challenging, but I'm going to try anyway. So the way I see optimism is not necessarily visualizing the success, not necessarily telling myself, that things will be good when I don't know if they're going to be good, but telling myself that I don't know and therefore it pays to take the chance it's It's the absence of telling my thing myself that things will be bad right so I don't know if you ever saw the movie Chicken Run, but you know it's a bunch of chickens trying to escape a chicken farm In that movie. And there's one scene where Bunty turns to Ginger and says, listen, toots, the chances of us getting out of here alive are a million to one. And Ginger looks at her and says, so there's a chance. And it's not pretending that it's not a million to one. It's knowing that it's a million to one and trying anyway. That's optimism. right? I know that things can be really difficult. But. I'm going to try anyway, because if one out of a hundred will succeed, there's no reason I can't try to be that one. Life's too short not to take chances, right? It's a, it's a great lesson. You know, Wayne Gretzky said, you miss every shot you don't take. You have to take the shots and in order to get yourself to take the shots, you can't allow yourself to be hopeless. You can't say, Oh, what's the point of this anyway? If I say to myself, well, I'm going to miss the plane, then I'm not going to try. But if I say to myself, there's a chance, I'm going to try. And that's optimism. And I I really, you know, there's been some talk of toxic optimism, of pretending things that are are better than they are, or forcing people to say that things are better than they are. And I don't believe in any of that at all. I mean, you don't want to do that. You want to say, you know, this is pretty bad, but within this bad, there are these good pieces and we're going to focus on those. Now, one time I was driving with my dad somewhere and we hit every single red light and I turned to him and I said, we get to spend more time together. That's optimism. A good way of looking at it.
3: I do have to say that also made me reflect on the time during the pandemic, of course, you know, definitely was hard. To be optimistic. And my, my dad kept saying to me, you know, if there's a silver lining here, it's that all of my kids are home. And this is the most time we all have gotten to spend together. And I, I know, obviously, we were not the only ones thinking that, that too, because it did bring a lot of families together. Um, again, although the circumstances, of course, were difficult, but at the time, I it really did make me think, wow, you know, that is it's a great way to think about the hardships we're going through right now. And yeah, definitely, definitely made me made me reflect on my my thinking process for sure.
1: Yeah, it's it's really just kind of forcing yourself or or teaching yourself to focus on the positive you know, on Monday, it, it it was pouring and people were kind of gloomy about that. And I was like, "Yay! I don't have to water the garden. And I was like, there's positives in everything. Right. So, yeah, I prefer a sunny day. But if it's going to rain, I'm going to focus on the fact that I don't have to water. So, you know, you, yep. you know I, I say to people that optimism isn't pretending it's not cloudy. It's not. Imagining that it's going to be sunny, it's noticing that the clouds are beautiful too, and they really are if you look at them. True. For me,
2: warm sunny days means I usually have to mow the lawn, so uh, having a little bit of rain isn't too bad.
1: Exactly. There's there's benefit to all of it, you know. And thinking about the pandemic, I mean, it was. Awful for a lot of people. People were really sick. People died. People lost loved ones. People lost livelihoods. It was very tough. And there were some really magical parts to it. Do you remember how quiet the city got? I mean, I thought that was amazing. Just walking down Com Ave and not hearing a single car. All of a sudden, you start hearing the birds more. And you realize that those sounds were there. We just couldn't hear them. And allowing us to focus on those things. So, you know, I was very much affected. I don't know if you ever read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. But to me, that was a very pivotal book because in it, I mean, he had a tougher life than I'll ever have. I mean, he was in the Holocaust. He had many relatives die, including his wife and parents. And he had nothing. He was in a, a concentration camp. And he said, the one thing they can't take away, away from me is my mind. The one thing they can't take from me is the ability to respond to situations. And, you know, that, that really spurred the thinking with me that we choose how to respond to things.
2: And um, we also wanted to talk about your fir- first book, Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous. Um, tell us about that book. What First of all, what does Kali Wobbles mean?
1: So wobbles literally means tummy ache. Um, More colloquially, it's used to mean butterflies in your stomach, that nervous feeling you get when you're about to do something that makes you anxious. Um, And the reason I wrote that book was because um, after teaching negotiation for over 20 years, I realized that we were teaching people skills and strategies. And then they go to use them and something would get in the way. They would get angry or they would get overwhelmed or they would get excited. And usually the thing that gets in our way is ourselves. Our own emotional reaction to the situation interferes with our ability to use the skills that we brought to the table. Um, So I wrote a book that combines emotional intelligence and negotiation. Because the idea is if we don't learn how to manage our emotions simultaneously as we try to use our negotiation skills, very often we Fall short, and we disappoint ourselves. You know, I've had students tell me I negotiate over every day for my boss, but I can't negotiate with my boss for my raise because every time I go to my boss's office, all of a sudden I can't breathe. Well, that person needs a way of managing their emotions so they can breathe again and have that conversation with with the boss. Um, and this is so common. So what I did in Wobbles was was I looked at responses that people have both in the moment, in moments of stress during negotiation, and some longer-term effects. You know, what are we afraid might happen if we negotiate? What's our response to conflict? What's our response to uncertainty? What are the narratives that we tell ourselves that impact how we go into a situation to negotiate with someone else? Um, I talked about how we frame ourselves as powerless. In a situation where really the other person is talking to us because they need something and therefore we have some power in the situation. We're just downplaying our power so much that we psych ourselves right out of the negotiation before we even say hello. And then I I give some tools for doing all these things. I give some tools for slowing down, for, for managing moments for listening and drawing out the other party while also de-escalating situations and slowing down for ourselves. I, I give some, some tools for, for communicating our idea to the other person, even though we're having a hard time doing it for, for managing energy. I have one chapter that's called um, managing the grind because it turns out the negotiations take time and they wear us out. And very often as we start getting worn out, we uh, don't function as well. So how do we manage our energy? So we can stay effective throughout the process. Um, It was a very, very gratifying book to read. Sorry, to write. It's a very gratifying book to write. Um, And I always say that I wrote a self-help book for me because I've struggled with a lot of these issues. You know, I've got good skills. I've been in the field for 28 years now. But I'm also emotionally very volatile. I get upset. I get overwhelmed. I get angry. uh, I get excited. And all those things prevent me from using my skills. So what I found was that learning to manage my emotions in real time made me much better, not just in negotiations, but uh, in general, as a self-advocate, as as a parent, as a a husband, as a teacher, as a mediator, and learning to manage myself has, has really allowed me to access all the preparation that I do, all the strategies I develop and all the skills that I have.
2: What you said about the effects of time in the negotiation is really interesting to me because we've all been in those situations where you're buying a car and it takes all day. And by the end of the day, you're just like, fine, just give me the deal. I want the car. I want to go home. What advice would you give to that person where it's for, five o'clock in the afternoon, they're starving. They just want to go home. How do they continue the fight for the best deal for their car?
1: So the first thing I would say is you probably should have gone out for coffee sometime in the middle of those four or five hours. All right? You need to find ways of disengaging from the situation. It's almost like we get spellbound once we're there. And if you actually pinky swear to yourself to, leave the dealership and go have coffee somewhere else in the middle. Very often it breaks the spell. And sometimes you realize, Oh, I don't even like this car. Why am I even negotiating for it? Or, you know, I'm, I'm not getting anywhere in terms of the kind of deal I'm looking to have. But the bigger advice is if you feel that way at the end of the day, go home without the car. It's just a car, right? It'll be there tomorrow. And if it isn't, Another car will be there or somewhere else tomorrow. Once you feel like you have to have the deal, you have to close it. Um, you've given away all your power and you've put yourself in a situation where you are willing to capitulate. You're willing to give anything just to have it. end. Um, that's not a good place to be. So, you know, in chapter seven in the book, I talk about alternatives that I talk about the idea that you don't come to an agreement here. You can always do something else. And to really ground yourself in those alternatives to ground yourself in the idea that this is one way of meeting my interests, but it's certainly not the only way of meeting my interests and disengage. You know, I, I I'm a mediator and I, I mediate cases and sometimes I mediate day long cases and people behave really differently in hour one and hour seven by hour one. They're like, let me at them," hour seven. They're like, make it stop. And they, they, they do, they give everything away just to have it end. And, uh, You know, my advice to people is if your energy level drops down that low, um, go away. Come back tomorrow. You're going to be in a much better place.
3: Are there any other books that you've thought about writing now in in the different topics that you discuss in in your three books? Do you now have an idea of what you may want to expand on or...
1: I'm writing three books, um, in, uh, you know, as a follow-on to what I've done already. So, um, so chapter nine of color wobbles is all about listening, but it's really focused on negotiation and listening is such an important topic that I felt like it deserved its own book. So, uh, I came up with this concept about 20 years ago called the listening triangle, which is a tool that I teach in, in chapter uh, chapter nine of Collier wobbles And I'm writing a book now called The Listening Triangle to really expand on that concept and apply it to contexts other than negotiation. Um, in addition, a former student of mine and I are co-writing a book about leadership, in particular, leading your peers. What happens when you just got promoted, and now the people that you're leading are the people who are your best friends, like last week. And that presents all sorts of challenges for people. And there's not a whole lot good that's written specifically about how to manage that challenge. And the third one is an expansion of chap- chapter six in the book. It's um, Chapter six is all about narrative. It's called What's Your Story? And a core belief of mine now is that what we tell ourselves determines how we live our lives and how we experience our, our, you know, our lives. So I'm writing a book about narrative and uh, I have kind of a an unusual take on it, I'm kind of writing an autobiography of my own narrative. It's not an autobiography of my life, but it's a, it's an autobiography of the stories that I've been telling myself about myself, other people and situations throughout my life, and how those narratives have impacted the choices I've made, how I felt, how I've interacted with others. So I'm working on all three of those right now. I have no idea which one will complete first, but I've been getting books out at the rate of about one every year and a half. And uh, I think it's possible that I'll have another one out within that timeframe. How do
2: you go about juggling each product project? Do you work on one until you sort of hit a wall and then jump to the other one? Or do you try to evenly space the
1: work? Um, I'm not that organized. <laughs> so I kind of work on whatever I feel like. And if I feel inspired, like if let's say I have an idea about one of the books. I'll I'll just take a couple hours and I'll work on that idea and I'll write a piece of a chapter. And then if that keeps going well, I keep doing it. If I get stuck or if I get bored, I'll set it aside. And if I get an idea in one of the other books, I'll work on that for a bit. And um, the one I'm co-writing, I have to be a little bit more organized on because there's two of us. So we actually meet on a regular basis and work on it together. But, but the others, it's a little bit more kind of catch as catch can. I'm, I'm very busy. I, you know, I, I have a lot going on. I wrote Wobbles mostly on airplanes um, because at the time I was flying a lot, and when I was on an airplane, that was the only time that no one else could bother me. I was kind of flying—I was flying, you know, transatlantic and, and to Asia and stuff like that. And you know, you have these great long flights where I'm not connected to Wi-Fi and uh, nobody bothers me, and I got most of the book written on planes. That's awesome.
2: Um, going back to Wobbles, I wanted to ask: Are there any? personality traits that you find people to be more naturally inclined to negotiating well and then also are there for maybe other personality types do you see common mistakes that people make in negotiating
1: so i think first of all anyone can negotiate and, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I'm a bad negotiator. And you talk to them for a bit and you realize they're not bad negotiators at all. They're more comfortable with certain kinds of negotiations, and very uncomfortable with other kinds of negotiations. So in response to your question, certain personality types are more suited for different kinds of negotiation. So, for example, if I am very anxious or if I'm a conflict diverse people pleaser, it might be very difficult for me to engage in highly competitive transactional negotiations, right? Buying a car for me will be very, very difficult, but I might be a fantastic relationship based negotiator. I might be great at getting people to want to do business with me and to have them give me a lot of business. So it's not that I'm a bad negotiator. It's just that I'm suited to certain things. And what I really recommend to people is one, play to your strengths. I think we do things well when we know ourselves and we play to those strengths and two, work on those other parts. So they're good enough and they don't hold you back. I mean, if you're a natural competitive negotiation, sorry, if you're a natural uh, competitive negotiator, that's going to serve you well in some settings. But you might damage relationships at work or you might damage your relationships with your family members if you're just competitive all the time. So you need to work on your collaborative negotiation skills so you're not causing yourself damage. But you may choose to work in procurement because that's going to be a natural fit for your personality and style. On the other hand, if competitive negotiations are hard for you, they make you very anxious Don't work in procurement. That's probably not your best, uh, you know, your, your, your best setting. You might be great at sales because at sales, you're all about developing relationships. So, yes, different personalities do different things well. Know yourself, play to your strengths, and then shore up those areas. Get training, practice, get mentors, get support, and just work on, um, shoring up those other parts so they don't hold you back
2: or just uh, read collie wobbles, right? That's the <laughs> best thing. <anyone> do.
1: <laughs> read Collie wobbles daily and tell, tell all your friends about yeah. it.
3: Well, the, this was really an interesting conversation. And I do have to say, I would love, I, I am going to work on applying this thinking to my day to day because it really is a choice, as you say state, but there are so many benefits to look at. Just as you said, you know, if it's raining, you don't have to. You don't have to water the plants, and I, I really, I just really love the the lessons and just all of the examples you use because it's relatable. And I appreciate you really breaking this down for us.
1: Thank you so much, Shannon. You know, I don't want to say that any of this is easy. You know, I think that it's easy to be optimistic when everything's going well. And there are times when things go terribly and it's much, much harder to keep your spirits up and to focus on the positives then. And I I don't think we should beat on ourselves Not succeeding in focusing on the positive during those times, we should celebrate our little successes in that as well. You know, if something terrible happened to me or is happening to me, and I succeed in being positive 5% of the time, that's 5% better than I would be otherwise. And I shouldn't beat on myself. Or the other 95%. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a great thing to do. It's not always easy to do and we shouldn't be judgy with ourselves or others about that. Um, we should just keep trying. And by the way, I think that optimism and negotiation are very closely linked. I, uh, I do uh, videos about negotiation on my LinkedIn site every couple of weeks and a uh, few weeks ago, one was called uh, optimism. And, and the idea is that if you're not optimistic that resolution is possible, then you give up negotiating before you start. You say, well, it's hopeless for us to come to an agreement, but um, it's all very, very closely connected. You have to imagine that it's at least possible that even though it looks unlikely, we might find a way out of the situation. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the uh, the great questions and uh, the opportunity to talk about the books.
3: Of course. No, it's been a pleasure. And I, I truly look forward to your next three that are in the works, mm-hmm. um, especially the leadership, the leadership lessons. Um, just that that's something that I definitely can relate to and, something i'm always trying to work on and just as you you said it it's interesting to have to take on that role of leading your peers who are also your friends and just relationships in general you know that can always be challenging so i, I really i especially look forward to that to that book
1: well hopefully maybe we can talk again when that
0: happens
3: yes absolutely <sighs>
0: Well, that will wrap it up for this episode of the Insights at Questrom podcast. A special thank you again to Moshe Cohen, Senior Lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business for joining us today, as well as Steve Sisto and Shannon Light, Insights at Questrom contributors. On the next episode of the Insights at Questrom podcast, we sit down with Greg Stoller as he talks about the 50K Sustainability Case Competition at Questrom School of Business and the value of case competitions in business education. So until next time, take care.